Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Five Oaks. My name is John. I serve as our executive pastor of ministries, and uh, we get to dive into the second week of a new series that we are kicking off for the summer here. And uh, I have recently come to realize once again that there are two different types of people in this world. There are those of us who know that there is one specific way to load a dishwasher and another type of person that just loads it randomly. And there are those of us who strive for inbox zero in our email. And sometimes we get there. And then there are those of you who have the little red icon on your phone app, uh, mail app that has like, someone showed me this, like 67,000 emails. I had to sit down. It's like my blood pressure went through the roof. And, uh, and, and, and then there's another, uh, another thing that divides many of us, and that is uh, dashboard warning lights in our cars. Uh, recently, I had the uh, tire pressure monitoring system light coming on and off in our van, and I took it in, and we needed new tires anyway, and they said, yeah, the, the sensors in, in there are, there's a little battery in there, and that battery, you know, because you have an older car, I was like, are you judging my older car? I like my older car. And uh, anyway, so he was explaining that, you know, that they needed to be replaced. Or he said, oh, you can just, I mean, a lot of people just leave that light on. And, and he starts explaining this to me. And he must have seen the 11s come out, you know, on my, on my forehead. And he's like, um, I'm guessing you're not that guy. I'm like, I'm not that guy. I, you, I know it's going to cost me, but why don't you go ahead and, uh, and replace those. There's another dashboard indicator that all of us are paying a little bit more attention to these days. I saw this this week online. I wouldn't tell anyone if I won the lottery, but there would be signs. <laughs> I filled up our cars on Friday morning, and uh, I felt like I had taken my wife out to a fancy dinner. I came home with this sense of accomplishment, and it's just gas, you know? And so anyway, it's, it's a little crazy, but right now it doesn't, and so this just, it just makes me feel a little happier. It probably shouldn't have that much of an effect on my emotions, but, but it just does until it gets down here. And I know that it's going to be a, a serious investment to get it back, you know, full. So, uh, well, we are, um, you know, when we think about warning lights uh, and we dive into our message this weekend and the series that we are in, uh, we're talking a little bit about warning lights. And so perhaps you can think of a time when you left a warning light on uh, or you got so used to a warning light being on that you began to disregard it because you knew that it wasn't really a warning you of anything, that it just had been on for quite some time and it was just something that you could kind of um, ignore. Well, we're in a new series and we're looking at the book of Second Peter. And it's a letter and, uh, that Peter has written to, uh, to a, a series of churches, uh, and, and the majority of his letter deals with his, a warning about false teachers in the church who are teaching heresy and living immorally. And that means that at times the letter feels a little bit negative, and it also feels like Peter is writing with a pretty intense sense of urgency. And there's two reasons that he's got this sense of urgency. The first is that Peter is really concerned about the state of the church. And he's concerned about uh, the teachings that people are hearing and, and the, the, the lifestyle that's being promoted to them by some of uh, the, these leaders who are living immorally, and, but living as though it's okay. And uh, the second reason that there's a sense of urgency in this letter is that Peter has come to find out and know that he's nearing the end of his life. 
And so as he writes this letter to this series of churches that he's been a part of planting, uh, it's really similar to Moses' last sermon. Uh, This is kind of Peter's last sermon to these churches. You know, this would have been a circulatory letter that would have worked its way around uh, these churches. And so these are kind of Peter's uh, last words. We've titled the series Dying Words. It's kind of as as he's preparing to, in many ways, leave a legacy. Uh, He's giving them some final instructions before he dies. And consistent with the whole Bible story, this letter is not written to us, but it is most certainly written for us. And to ignore Second Peter is a lot like ignoring the warning lights on your car, telling you that you've got uh, a, a tire that's losing air or you're low on oil, ignoring either of which can lead to catastrophe. And in this sense, not catastrophe, to catastrophe in, a, in a mechanical sense, but catastrophe in a spiritual sense. And we don't have to look very far or even go this far back in history to find uh, the church walking through a difficult time. We just look around the, the, our, our church today, not our church specifically, but the church in general. There are scandals that continue to come to the surface. I recently finished listening to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and many of you have, have heard of this podcast. If you haven't listened to it, uh, it's pretty powerful and pretty gut-wrenching. Uh, but I think a little bit essential for, for those of us who, as we're just thinking about how, to, how we keep uh, things in a healthy place. So Mars Hill Church was a Christian megachurch that was founded in 1996 by Mark Driscoll. And it was a multi-site church based in Seattle, Washington, that grew from a home Bible study to 15 campuses in four U.S. states. And, and, and any of us that were in ministry, you know, particularly in church ministry at that time, or just you kind of probably remembered hearing about Mark Driscoll, and he, there was these, these really powerful stories of life change and the way that this guy could preach and the, the, the rate at which their church was growing. And the podcast tells this, this story. It tells the story of this rapidly growing church with incredible stories of life change. But it pulls back the curtain, and, and it helps us to see that behind all of that success, however, was a culture of intimidation, abuse, and an unhealthy leader who insulated himself from accountability and correction. And woven into the fabric of their culture were false teachings that at best were manipulative and at worst were downright spiritually abusive. Listening to the podcast, you hear these stories of, of life change and, that, and, and part of what they're pointing out is that God is still working in these really messy places. And yet you can't forget or deny the pain and heartache of real stories as people are recounting their experience and talking about how their experience on staff or as a part of Mars Hill has has not only destroyed their lives, it's destroyed their faith. And it's destroyed their relationship with the church. And on one hand, as I'm listening to it, there's part of me that says, wow, look how bad that guy is. I'm so glad that I could never be that guy. And I'm so glad that our church could never be that church. But we would be so arrogant to think that. That for me and our entire pastoral staff, and the, the, the story of Mars Hill is a heart-wrenching and sobering reminder of the responsibility that we have as pastors and staff, and as well as, 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 as regular attenders and members, to, to, to be open to correction and accountability, and to, to be in step with God, not only together as a community, but individually. And reading Second Peter, you see that this isn't uh, new, that this is, in, this is as old as humanity in the church. It's as old as the early days of the church. Second Peter warns of these false teachers in the early church who are teaching false doctrines. They're attacking the teaching of the apostles, and they're living sexually immoral lives. 
Now, the assumption here seems to be that perhaps one group of people is doing all of these things. But that doesn't, it doesn't have to be that way. You can have champions of orthodoxy, uh, meaning that they're keeping all the right things in place as far as, 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 uh, as, as teaching, who are abusing power and sexually abusing people. And you can have champions living lives of integrity who are teaching false ideas. You can also have people who are great examples in their lifestyle and orthodox in their teaching, but they're covering up wrongdoing for the sake of saving an institution. They've put institutions like denominations or schools or ministries over protecting people and speaking the truth. So today, as we're looking at the first two verses of, of 2 Peter, uh, at first glance, it may look like just kind of a generic greeting. And like many of the, the books in our Bible, uh, there is a, a little quick greeting that we kind of just you know, get right past and skim over and get to, get to the meat. And we're going to see that this is so much more than a greeting. In fact, when Henry uh, put out the, the preaching plan for this series, I teased him a little bit, and I was like, Henry, two verses? I mean, you got to give me a little more meat to work with here. This is just a greeting, you know. And, uh, and I, I have personally been so excited about what uh, uh, we've uncovered as a preaching team and, 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 and my study this last couple weeks. Uh, it's just uh, there's a lot more here than just a simple greeting. At times, the Bible can feel like a mystery. And, and, and one of the things that we really work hard at here at Five Oaks is to, to, is to help it to not be a mystery. So let's, in light of that, let's open our Bibles and we're going to look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And if you're using one of the Bibles in the seat in front of you, it's on page 1,225. And so as we turn there, uh, let's, let's go to our Father and uh, ask for him to be here uh, and illuminate his word um, for us. Let's pray. God, your word is the light that leads us and the truth that shines in the darkness. Illuminate your truth and guide us by your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes to the things that we need to see and give us a deeper understanding of who you are and who we are in you. God, would you direct our steps to follow wherever you lead. And Father, we pray for peace in every sense of the word as we look at so much conflict in our world. Uncertainty seems to be everywhere, from shootings and war and uh, the threat of new wars and abuse and scandal and, and your church is no exception. And we ask for your presence in all of this, that you would not only calm the storms that we see, but you would help keep us calm as the storm rages around us. Bring us peace in the midst of this turbulent time. We ask all these things in your precious name. Amen. So let's turn to Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And, uh, and it says this, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. So one of the things as we're unpacking scripture and, and looking specifically at a couple of verses that can be helpful is to read it once and then pause for a moment and then read it back through a little bit more slowly. And oftentimes different words spring out of this. So, so I'll, I'm going to read it again and you can follow along. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. So what we're going to find here is that Peter actually packs the foundation of his entire letter into what looks like a simple greeting. 
Peter opens reminding the churches that he's writing about, that writing to, that through Jesus, God has invited people to become a participant in, in his own divine nature. And that is that, that Peter is going to invite us uh, to, be, to share in God's eternal life and love. And so our journey of following Christ is so much more than just agreeing with a list of truths and principles. It requires an active, lifelong response. And to receive this gift means a commitment to developing the same character traits that mark God's own divine nature. And Pastor Henry is going to lead us into that next week as we look at some of the, the virtues that Peter is going to point out and call uh, the, his people to, the people to. Um, but essentially here, Peter is calling the people to read this letter to knowledge of God and Jesus and lifelong growth in their faith. He's calling them to, to take stock in the knowledge that they have of God and then commit to lifelong learning and discipleship. And so as we walk through this, let's, we're going to break it down verse by verse, and you have it laid out this way in your sermon application guide. And so in verse 1, Peter starts with, with this opening. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And so what Peter is doing here is he is establishing that this is not just anyone who's writing this letter. Peter is establishing who he is because depending on the situation, it matters whether we are known or not. And there are some moments where it's helpful to be unknown. And uh, here's a look at that. One minute. One minute, please. Time, thank you. Could you all please put down your pens and bring your papers to the front of the room? Thank you. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry, you're too late. Gave you plenty of warnings about time. You failed. Sorry. Excuse me, do you know who I am? I have absolutely no idea. Good. Isn't that great? Oh, I love that. There's part of me that wants to go back to college or higher learning and have a professor like that just to be able to do something like that. I don't know why. This would seem somewhat satisfying. So, so obviously there's certain situations where anonymity is helpful, and that was, that's one of them. Uh, but in Peter's situation, he wants to make sure that the, that the church that is, that are churches that are going to be reading this know who he is. And know why he, he is writing this. And so, in fact, who Peter is serves as the foundation of what he's going to write about and why people will listen and take action. Who Peter is serves as the foundation of what he's writing about and why people will hear it and take action. There's a couple reasons for this. You know, first of all, um, Peter is he, Peter's an eyewitness. And we can go back, and in your sermon application guide this week, there's some reading that, that, I, that I've given you to do to, to really go back and remind yourself about Peter's spiritual journey. So Peter is an eyewitness. He was a disciple. And, and, and so he's seen all the things uh, that Jesus did, and, and he was a part of that as it was, as it was happening. 
The other part here is that Peter uses the word servant. And to give you a little uh, Bible language background here, the word here that he's using is not the word diakonos, which would mean household servant. The word he's using is doulos, which would mean slave. And the reason that that's important and why that matters is that Peter is telling his readers that he is not writing this of his own authority. He's writing this because he is, he, is a, he is a slave of God, meaning that it is by God's authority, it is by his master's authority that he is writing the things that he's writing. And, and that would have been very meaningful uh, to people and a, and a very important part of, of helping them understand um, where this is coming from. So we move on to, move on to the second half of, of verse 1. Uh, it says, To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. So there's a couple things happening here. The first is that he is writing to people who are already Christians in the church. And so this is not an outreach letter. It's not uh, just going out to, to the general public. He's writing specifically to people who have already uh, decided to, to follow Jesus and to, to be a part of the church. He's also leveling the playing field. He's, he's saying, even though I'm an apostle of Christ, I, I, have, the faith, I have a faith a similar, that is the same faith as yours. So when he's saying as precious as ours, he's saying we are on the same journey together, the, the level playing field, that I believe what you believe and you believe what I believe and we're, we're moving through this together. And so he's telling them that I'm writing this to you as we, as we journey in faith together. And as we move on to the second verse then, Peter says, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Now, this is, again, a part of this opening uh, couple of verses where it feels a little bit like a greeting. That we might think, oh, that's nice, Peter. Thank you for, for offering us grace and peace. Uh, and so there's actually, uh, you know, not surprisingly, something else going on here. So this is part of where Peter is calling Christians to lifelong spiritual growth through the power of God empowered by the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. And so he's talking about knowledge. It's kind of leaning towards this lifelong, never stop growing um, kind of idea. And he's saying, grow by the grace and peace of God that binds us together as a community. We are together on this journey, seeking to live a faith that, that would continue to grow. And if you look at, let's look at the word abundance for a moment. So the NIV uses the word abundance. And if we go back to the King James Version, it uses the word multiply. And so oftentimes, there, well, essentially what's happening is this, this is an agricultural metaphor that's going on here. And the word multiplied is oftentimes used for seed. And so what Peter is getting to here is that, uh, that, that may this be yours and, and may it multiply. May you plant this. May you, may you scatter these seeds and may they produce a crop that's a hundredfold. Meaning that there would be a multiplication effect, not only to the impact of them following Christ, but in their own hearts and lives and minds that, that there would be fruit that would come from committing themselves to, to lifelong growth. 
And the reason that this is so important is that in our fast-paced culture, uh, where we've got cell phones that we can look things up on an internet, and uh, you know that we've got signals bouncing back and forth from outer space and cell towers, and it happens in a split second, spiritual growth does not work that way. And it, 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 what it means is that it, it, it requires a shift in our minds and in our hearts. And, and Peter obviously wouldn't have any knowledge of what a cell phone is. But what he's getting to here, and what the principle for us is that part of the, the journey of discipleship is slowing ourselves down enough while also committing ourselves to something that is going to take time. And again, Peter's life is such a perfect testimony of this process. Peter's instruction here is reminding us to fix our eyes and commit to continual, faithful, lifelong growth. That isn't just a part of us kind of picking ourselves up by the boot, our bootstraps, but that is empowered by the grace of God. Peter is saying, never stop growing. And this is not going to be a straight line, but it will be one with some setbacks. And in fact, what we see as failure oftentimes is, is a, can be fail, failing forward. And we don't have to look any farther than Peter's story to be reminded of this. Peter was a fisherman, an uneducated fisherman. Jesus meets him on his boat and invites him uh, to, to follow him, and he does. Peter is the first disciple to, to, to call out to Jesus on the water and then step out of the boat and walk across the water towards Jesus. He immediately doubts and, and, and starts to sink, and Jesus catches him. Later in his story, Peter is so zealous about doing what, what they're a part of. He cuts a guy's ear off in the garden as the guards come to arrest Jesus. And then Jesus, uh, he denies Jesus with his heart and with his life after pledging to die in Jesus' place. Peter's actions throughout his story are just, it, they're a glorious mess. He is a mess of a person. You know, when Jesus, uh, when Jesus returns and comes and appears to the disciples, Peter takes his clothes off and jumps out of a boat like he's on some kind of a reality show. And, you know, Peter has journeyed to this authentic faith. Like, look at, look at where Peter is in his faith as he's writing this letter. He's, and all of these things, his experiences along the way, has been this lifelong commitment to, to failing forward, to faithful, heart-filled service on Jesus' mission. And Peter's desire is that we would commit to the same type of growth in such a way that it comes out of us in Christ-likeness. And so some of the urgency in this letter is that it's recognizing that there are people teaching something that is not that, and they're living it out as though it is. And so it, it, what is this type of growth, this committing that, ourselves to that? What does that look like? Well, we live in a really interesting time with regard to spiritual growth in our heads and in our hearts. That on the one hand, there's a bit of a crisis for sure in the American church that stems from a lack of sound, true biblical knowledge. In fact, I heard this week that evangelicals are the most likely group to believe heretical or untrue and false things about Christianity. That's us. We're the most, un we're the most likely group to believe things about Christianity that aren't true. And at the same time, knowledge on its own it doesn't produce a heart or a life that creates an experience of life with the living God, nor does it multiply the gospel. Knowledge is like fuel in the tank. It's essential, and it has to be the right fuel. But unless we hit the gas pedal and do something with it, it just sits there. 
There's a learning cycle that I was at a conference this, uh, earlier this week, and they were talking about this, this learning cycle and how in our churches we can you know, just really be intentional about moving people to the action portion of the learning cycle. And so the learning cycle applies to all of us at every phase of life as we're learning anything. And essentially what it is is that it's, it's the part of the learning cycle where we're committing something to action, and it's the part that we rarely get to because it's the part that requires our own effort and commitment and discipline to do it. So we've learned all the things, we've, we've committed to all the things, but unless we do it, we don't complete the learning part of the, the action part of the learning cycle. Our daughter Eden is playing rec softball uh, this summer, and as the season was getting ready to kick off, uh, I thought it'd be good to, you know, to, to go and, and throw a little bit. And she's played a lot of backyard wiffle ball and home run derby with, with her brothers. But, uh, and so we went up to a field near our house, and we threw, we, before we started anything, I made sure that I gave great instruction. We sat on the bench, and I said, okay, this is how this is going to go. We're going to take the ball, kind of like the old, uh, you know, this is a ball. And, uh, and then I said, this is a bat. And I, sh- I didn't even go over there, but I pointed to the batter's box. I pointed to the pitch's mound. I pointed to where all the bases were. And then and she said, well, now what do we do? I said, now we just sit here, and we close our eyes, and we imagine this happening. And that's all we do. That would be ridiculous. Of course I didn't do that. What we did was we went out on the field and we started throwing the ball. And then she grabbed a bat and we started to, to pitch. And then she pitched to me. It was learning, learning by doing. And as you know, it's, it's really, that's, it's not a novel concept uh, because, you know, that's just how we teach our kids anything. And yet in our faith, unless we commit something to action, it just stays in our head. So this picture is a great picture. Uh, she got her first strikeout the other night, two in the same night. And so I may have lifted the softball from the field. Uh, I've confessed for that already. Um, and I uh, took a Sharpie and wrote that on there with a date so that she could, she could remember uh, an accomplishment of, of, of learning something and kind of moving towards uh, and just kind of growing in her ability and skill uh, to do something. So there's two types of growth. The first type is head knowledge. And growing in our head knowledge is taking new information and learning about God and the story we're a part of. And so here at Five Oaks, we do that in a couple of different ways. Part of that is just our teachings on the weekend. And so we're learning, we're learning this morning. Uh, another big thing that we do is we call it the story of God. And it's a small group experience that, that walks people through how to read the Bible as one cohesive narrative that is all tied together pointing to Jesus. And that's an important part of how we're becoming disciples because if we don't understand how things tie together, then some of the other pieces don't really make a lot of sense. So that's a great example of some head knowledge. Uh, but growing in our heart knowledge is in taking that information and then taking some steps to live and act in light of what we know and believe. Now, the litmus test on heart knowledge and on any kind of knowledge is that we uh, really are our belief is that we really only believe what we actually do. We really only believe what we actually do. And so when we think about, what, if someone were to ask you, do you believe X, Y, Z? You can just look at your life, and that will tell you whether or not you actually believe it. And that's a little bit of a harsh truth, and it, you know, as we think about what that means. But it's a great litmus test for us to just to be thinking and reflecting on, do I really do the things, are the things that I say I believe working themselves out in my life? 
And where our next week's sermon is going to go is to kind of, Peter's going to start to introduce some of what these virtues are and some of the things that we ought to see in our lives that suggest that, that we've committed uh, to, to living out who God is and living out the knowledge of God in our lives. Peter is writing to Christ followers like you and me, and he is giving them actions to live out in light of their knowledge and belief. Spiritual growth is not accomplished through just the accumulation of information. It is the accumulation and the application of the knowledge of God. And it, this applies to all types of learning, but it's especially true in our spiritual growth. And like a seed, it takes time for it to grow and develop inside of us and in our lives and in our hearts. Tim Keller writes this powerful quote, that the difference between being a Christian and just being a good, moral, religious person is this. You can heap up moral deeds and religious activities, and you can read your Bible and pray and go to church and give to the poor and be very, very active and not actually be growing wiser and better and deeper and happier. So I think there's a couple of things going on that he's, he's trying to capture here. On the one hand, he's saying that we can do all the things and not actually uh, experience the living God within us. And I think what he's also saying is that, that, that growing in this sense ought to, to bring us wisdom and ought to bring us uh, a deeper sense of, of confidence in who God is. And, and, and by happier, he's not pointing to some new age Christianity type of happiness thing. He's saying that, that our lives and hearts and minds, that there's a sense of happiness and fulfillment as we move closer to the God who's created us. And as we invite that God, the power of God, to live within us. He offered, in the same kind of part of this quote, he offers a fantastic example of this, telling the story of John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church. And uh, he, he just has these quick bullets that kind of help us to understand quickly John Wesley's story. So John Wesley felt a calling and wanted to connect to God, and so he went off to Oxford. He was part of what's called the Holy Club. He and a number of other religious students were in this Holy Club, and they were called Methodists because they were so methodical about their religious observances. They shared their faith with people, prayed several times a day, and they went to chapel and took the sacrament every day. When he got out of college at Oxford, he was ordained as a priest in the Church of England around 1728, and then he went into missions, and he went to America, to the frontier, and was a missionary in America uh, for quite some time. It wasn't until 1738, on a particular night, when on Aldersgate Street in London, he and some friends were reading Martin Luther's commentaries on Galatians and Romans to each other, and he felt his heart change, and he was converted. And if you go to Aldersgate Street, this is a plaque in this location where this happened. And it says, the probable site where on May 24, 1738, John Wesley, quote, felt his heart strangely warmed. This experience of grace was the beginning of Methodism. A powerful example of, of someone who has been in ministry as a priest and went to Bible college and, and studied and yet still uh, hadn't really had a moment where, where his heart was warmed by the presence of God. Now, why is that? How is that? I don't know, but most of us have had an experience like that. Or maybe you haven't and you've got all this knowledge inside and it's like, yeah, I, I don't, I'm not quite sure that I've had a, a warming moment. 
And we don't have to look just to, to historical figures. We can look at our own uh, stories and our own hearts. For myself, uh, I, a few years ago, I found some journals that I kept when I was in college. And I was, uh, it was right when my faith was, was taking off uh, beyond belief into the way that I was living and serving. And, um, and reading them, it's almost cheesy how positive this guy is. Like, man, this is a guy that like, clearly has not had life beaten out of him yet by life. And, uh, and you know, and so it was both uh, surprising and inspiring to, to just look back and see this moment when that my heart had become warmed. But then as I fast forward my time into to seminary, my prayer life went through an intense season of apathy, cynicism, and death. And I, I think cynicism today is the thief that destroys our hearts. And it's not a new thing. If you read back in, in Genesis when the serpent slithers up to Adam and Eve, it's cynicism. It's a cynical mindset that he brings to them about who God isn't and whether or not they can trust him. And many of us go through seasons, or perhaps we, we see it like this all the time when we feel cynical. We don't allow ourselves to hope or to dream or to envision. And sometimes that happens because of a new truth that we've learned. Sometimes that happens just because we're, we're, we're moving through a season in our faith. Sometimes it's because something awful has happened in our lives. Uh, and one of the, the books that I read regularly, and I'm reading it again now, is called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. And he writes this quote about cynicism. Cynicism begins with the wry assurance that everyone has an angle, that behind every silver lining is a cloud. It protects you from crushing disappointment, but it paralyzes you from doing anything. It leads to a creeping bitterness that can deaden and even destroy the spirit. For me, it was a season of investigating the mechanics of prayer. It wasn't seminary in and of itself. It was just the, the way that my life and, and head were reacting to thinking about prayer at a, at a different level. And as I did that, it just it sucked the life right out of my prayer life. And you know, some of you know that I'm already prone to overthinking, and this was like stepping into the matrix and considering all these things that I'd never considered before. And, uh, and what I was doing was essentially deconstructing my faith. What's the point of prayer? God, if God knows anyway by the nature of who God is, then why do I need to pray? And what does it really mean if God doesn't answer my prayers? Does it mean he wasn't there? Does it mean I'm not asking the right thing? Is there a reason, something I did that was wrong? All of these things that just almost philosophically just mounted against uh, what had been a very alive and passionate prayer life before. And this deconstruction kind of took me into what's called moratorium, which I have come to find out since then is actually an essential part of our faith, that it takes us into this death of our faith where we doubt the things that we believe only because of the living God, only to discover that it is true. And it is demanding of our, of our faith and of our lives. And moving through that process can help us to actually become more mature. And so any of you uh, who have high school students or even college students, or if you are a high school student or college student and you're moving through that, that is a part of your faith, a healthy part of, of your faith. And so I'm sharing this with you because we can look at Peter's life, we can look at John Wesley's life, and we can look at our own lives to recognize that growing spiritually doesn't always look the way we think it should. And Peter's letter is the word of God reminding us that he is with us. 
and that we ought not to grow tired or cynical in the face of opposition as we seek lifelong growth. So what does this mean? In light of how and what Peter is, is pointing us to, what do we do? What is this action? How do we begin to move towards some action? Well, some of this is going to feel, frankly, a little elementary, but, uh, but I think it's essential to, to taking his letter to heart. And we'll get to do this over the course of the next weeks as we move through uh, his letter. But um, as you look at your sermon application guide this week, the first question says, before you begin, spend 10 minutes in quiet reflection. I want you to actually do that. I can't force you to do that, but there's a reason. And this, I, didn't, I didn't put that in there because I didn't have any other questions to ask and just needed a filler. The reason I put that in there is that, again, at this conference this week, we, we talked about discipleship and that one of the things that's missing in our culture today is solitude. We never have to be alone. We always have a phone or a device or something in our ears or in our eyes. And this idea of solitude brings us to a sense of self-knowledge. Again, not a New Age concept, something where we are internally reflective. And because we believe in a God who is active and living inside of us, we know that in those moments of solitude, he will bring things to our mind and to our hearts that might be great, might be hard, or might just be something that we need to pay attention to. And so as you start this week, start with 10 minutes of quiet reflection. Pray and ask God to breathe new life into you, to shine light into the darkness of whatever cynicism is in you. There is a lot that has happened in our world in the past two years that can produce the level of cynicism that many of us would have. That would be a very normal reaction. And the grace of God in Christ empowers us to grow even in the face of opposition. At the same conference, Ed Stetzer, who's a very prominent evangelical figure, came and spoke, and he said, folks, the moment we're in doesn't pause the mission we are on. The moment we're in doesn't pause the mission we are on. And I think there's two point parts to that mission. There's the mission of the church that has been very complicated in the last few years for all the things and reasons. But then there's the mission of, of Christ into our hearts. And the moment we're in does not pause the mission that we are on. We are active participants in the mission that God is on to rescue our hearts and to bring them back to him. And lastly, we have to remember that you have the living God at your disposal, living in you. That is what we believe that Jesus accomplished. Not only did he reconcile us to God with his death, but he indwelled the power of God within us to those who call him Lord. He indwelled that within us as the means by which we live in the way that he's calling us and inviting us to live. So as we move towards our time of communion and response, we do so holding that truth so close to the reason that, that we receive communion each and every week. And so I invite you to take out your communion packet and remember that it is by Jesus' death and resurrection that any of the things that we're talking about are possible and available to us. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus was sitting with his closest friends and he stood up after the evening meal and he, and he, took, he took some bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, as we sit here this morning, you know exactly where our hearts are at. 
You know where we are in our relationship to you. You know the things in our lives that are either keeping us from you or bringing us closer to you. God, we just lay it all at your feet. And we ask that you remind us that it is your power living within us that, that helps us to live in the way that you're calling us to. And that actually that's part of what you're trying to do. That is the mission that you're on to our hearts is to live within us. And that by walking with you, just like we see in Peter's life, by walking with you, that there would be a sense and, and a, re- a reality of spiritual growth as we're moving towards you and towards your likeness. We love you and we thank you for your sacrifice and for your love. Amen.